Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 201. In this episode, I got to hang out with Katie Crosby. She is one of my favorite humans over on Instagram. You might know her account, Thriving Littles. And we dove into co-regulation and self-regulation. What this looks like in parenting and interacting with tiny humans and why one comes before the other. Folks, I have an exciting announcement. I am going to do a live workshop on highly sensitive children in a couple weeks. So we are just putting the final buttons on stuff and you can reserve your spot in this workshop starting on Monday, December 6th. We'll send you an email and I'll share about it in my Instagram stories. If you want to come join me for a live workshop on highly sensitive children, diving into sensory sensitivities and emotional sensitivities, we are going to do just that. So head on over to Instagram next Monday, check my stories to see where you can sign up and then come join me. I'll be going live on December 15th. And if you can't join live. No worries. As long as you have your spot in the workshop, we will send you access to the recording as well. All right, folks, let's hang out with Katie Crosby here. Let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome to Voices of Your Village. Today I'm here with Katie Crosby, an OT, and y'all know I'm a sucker for an OT. Super jazzed to get to hang out with you today, Katie. How are you? I am good, Alyssa. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to talking with your village. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to here, what life looks like for you now? Yes. So I am a pediatric occupational therapist, as you said, and I became interested in OT 
gosh, probably, I didn't hear about it until after undergrad. So once I heard about it, I thought, wow, this seems like a great profession in many ways. Um, I've always been interested in mental health and psychology. And I actually ended up working in logistics after undergrad for a while, which is completely unrelated. And then took a turn and switched to OT. And that brings me to life in Chicago, where I work at a private practice full-time. And then I do Thriving Littles on the side, which is a consult service where I talk with families and kids and do video work with them. That's awesome. So it's like virtual consults for OT? It, it isn't OT. So it's informational consults based on the science and evidence-based work that I do. It's not technically therapy or billed as OT because of insurance purposes. And uh, it's not considered telehealth. So it's more me working deeply with uh, parents and families to go through patterns and explore the parent-child match and look at things from more of a big picture versus me seeing a child at a drop-off session and getting them on their way. Awesome. That's so cool. Uh, well, that I found you through Thriving Littles on Instagram and was like, yeah, let's hang, let's chat. We Today, I want to dive into the difference between co-regulation and self-regulation. We have so many questions about what, what they are, what the difference is, when one is appropriate versus another, and kind of how to move from co-reg to self-reg. I tell families all the time that we start by co-regulating, right? Like infants don't come out and they're like, oh, I know how to self soothe. <laughs> uh, then we start by, by co-regulating and then we move eventually into building self-reg skills. So I want to kind of take folks through this timeline and what that looks like. Yeah. When we're talking about co-regulation, can you kind of define that for folks for what, like, what that means and what that looks like? Yes, absolutely. And I think the regulation terminology is more and more becoming mainstream, but it, and that's so cool, but it is this big word that really just means that we are emotionally organizing with the support of a trusted other. So a caregiver or an adult life, a friend. So we're always co-regulating each other based on how we're interacting throughout the day. And it's happening in moments of joy and pleasure and fun. So anytime you share joy genuinely with somebody else or you are using emotional signaling across space even if something happens and it's, it's funny or you want to laugh together, anytime that you're sharing that emotional energy exchange with another, it's, it's really co-regulation. So when we are kids speaking about co-regulation in the emotional world, meaning most of the questions that I get from parents, which are, uh, my child is having big feelings or intensity, or they've been really angry lately. So co-regulation often comes up in talking about these more quote-unquote negative range of emotional states. So when we think about meltdowns, the co-regulation aspect of it is that an adult is there with the child, guiding them through it. So it isn't the adult saying to stop crying or stop hitting or don't do that as much as it's the adult being a guide to help the child make meaning of the behavior that they're experiencing, but most importantly, the emotion, which is the root of that behavior. So in a negative emotional range or meltdown or tantrum, 
the language that we hear, uh, co-regulation is really what ultimately sets the stage for the child to self-regulate down the road. So it's thousands of repetitions co-regulating with a trusted adult who is regulated themselves in order for a child to develop this robust system of what it means to regulate their own body and nervous system. I love that when you were saying that I was thinking of mirroring, like mirror neurons and uh, like if a baby is laughing and like that belly giggle, it's so delicious. And we then like, you have to smile and laugh, right? Like we're feeding Mm -hmm. off of some people refer to it as that energy. Um, but really this is a a part of the set method. One of them is scientific knowledge and it's understanding this mirroring that when we show up to the table, no one's showing up with a blank slate, right? Like there is this, uh, there, there are mirror neurons firing off each other. And in the same way that you're laughing when that baby laughs, if that kid is having a tantrum on aisle four, you are internally having a tantrum on aisle four, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. we are in this together. And I love that you just threw in at the end that we, it's our job to self-regulate in order to show up for that tiny human, that it's not their job to find the calm, it's our job to bring it. I think that that's, that's so huge here. And, and that the like thousands of repetitions, I was like, yes, we don't read to kids as infants expecting them to read back to us tomorrow. We read to kids as infants expecting them to read back to us years down the road. And regulation and emotional development is, uh, the same thing that we are repeating this over and over and over. It's like reading Goodnight Moon for years. Mm-hmm. We're repeating it over and over and over um, for them to be able to build this skill set to do it on their own when we're not there one day. Yes, that. and there's there's so much difficulty in that step of us being regulated first, right? So I think the majority of the effort or the work that I see in this whole process is that we're working on our own regulation while they're trying to figure out theirs. So there's so much that goes into just that and being available for them in the moment. So uh, I love Alan Shore. He's a great resource for books on affect regulation and how kids develop this. And it really is tricky to do if the adult doesn't have a broad understanding of themselves and their cues in a way that they can be available for the child. Yeah, no, that's huge. Uh, and and so, I mean, life is going to happen, right? Like life's going to be busy. You're going to be trying to get out the door to go to work or trying to get a kid to bed. And it is going to be busy and stressful. And I, I think it, I have a lot in, in alignment with uh, Janet Lansbury. We both, I love Magda Gerber. I've learned a lot from her as a professional. And so Janet and I fall in line with a lot of things here, but one place that I see like a giant divide often is this idea that like, it's all going to be easy and perfect and you're just going to show up and regulate and it'll be fine. Like get your stuff together. And that's just not real life. And so I think part of this is looking at, in fact, the set method has five components and only one of them is adult child interactions. The other four are about us as adults. What are we doing and what are we bringing to the table Uh, so that we can show up and respond instead of react. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you were just saying, like the hardest part is regulating our own emotions when we're like, I have to get out the door to go to work, right? Like, I don't have time to sit here for 20 minutes and breathe and find my calm or whatever. Like, how do we navigate this? And I think when we're looking at like teaching kiddos to regulate, whether we're co-regulating or or we're trying to move towards self-reg skills, 
the modeling is so huge, mm-hmm. so huge. If what they see is that like, we have a hard emotion and we just yell about it or we fly off our handle without finding our calm, uh, that's what they're, that's what they know. Mm-hmm. And I think the repetition you mentioned is the same for us. So I see it as just recognizing that as humans, we will mess up and we will fly off the handle at times. And that's the way that we're wired is uh, reactive and more impulsive. And we have that in, in us somewhere. So it's bound to come out when you're ready to go out the door and trying to get somewhere and life stressors are showing up. So the repetition gives the opportunity for practice and just recognizing that shifting even a few percent every time that we're interacting, you know, trying to do a little bit better each time and repairing that when it doesn't happen and not letting all of it build up and form this self-blame or guilt or all of that stuff that really eats away from us being present in the moment when not only emotions are there, but all through life. So the repetition piece is so big for everybody. Yeah, I love that so much. So if you have a tiny, say you're coming to the table, you're like, all right, I'm in a good place. I feel like I can find my calm. And now I want to co-regulate with this child to help them find their calm so we can move forward. Um, Can you give us some examples of what that might look like? We'll start with like infancy and toddlerhood. Yes. So this is a question I get all the time. And Just a disclaimer, it is so individual with each child. So when I look at each child, each child's nervous system is as unique as a fingerprint. So when we think about co-regulation, really the first step is understanding the child's cues and signals and reading them from moment to moment and adapting our interaction in a way that is beneficial for that or matches it in some way, meaning we are either upregulating or downregulating their nervous system or their body and emotions in those moments. So from infancy, there are many say, similarities in possibilities of how we can regulate an infant. And as an OT, I really think about the sensory systems, and I think everybody would, you know, should have this awareness because it's so valuable of when we think about infantile regulation. It's really body that is the main piece of it. So I think about it as we're really closing the energy in space to be close to the infant and, you know, the body on body using sounds in our voice in a certain way that feels organizing to the infant using temperature. So some kids, if you step outside for a minute, maybe they were too warm. So we're adjusting the temperature of the child or maybe they were cold and they want to be warmed up. So we're reading that. Swaddling or firm pressure is an example of this. So we go through each sensory system, and there's eight of those. I would suggest everyone Google them and be familiar, but I'm completely biased as an OT. So um, there's so many good insights in sensory systems that we can use to co-regulate an infant and understand their bodies and minds and emotions a little bit better. So in in a baby, I'm looking at the mother or caregiver or father being close to the infant in some way. And then as we learn the co-regulation beyond that, it's kind of like stretching it across 
space. So the first step is all about the sensory strategies to soothe. And we would use these if the child is dysregulated enough or disorganized, having a meltdown, upset enough to need sensory strategies to soothe. So that means that they're not able to process language, which we think about most infants aren't yet ready to hear any kind of complex language and focus on the body and our presence and our nonverbal communication systems. Yeah, I love that. And I I think I love that you pointed out that it's so different between kids. Actually, our sleep consultant's currently on maternity leave and she has a four and a half year old and just had this new babe. And he came and she was like, whoa, like her world was rocked. Everything she'd known from her older daughter wasn't working to regulate this tiny human. And I showed up, he was about three weeks old and I, it was quickly realized like he doesn't want to be close to my body, right? Like he wants to be farther away. He wants to be in a quiet, dark room. He wanted, um, like movement to fall asleep. Whereas her daughter, she could like snuggle her up, feed her. She'd fall asleep on her anywhere and, uh, had a very, had very different sensory systems and the way that she regulated was so different. And it, took, it it is hard when you're in it to step back and communicate. I think especially with infants, the idea of communicating with infants, I think is a hard thing for a lot of folks to kind of wrap their brains around because they're not going to turn and say, Hey mom, I don't like that. Um, but they are going to with their response, right? Like every time I brought him close to me, he literally at three weeks was pushing himself away from me, um, or like turning his body away. And so that for me, like paying attention to that, but it does take like us being able to find our calm and pay attention to their responses to kind of figure out what, what it is they're trying to say to us and, and yeah. what they're communicating there. Yeah. In that moment where they're crying and they're really upset, it's like we're biologically triggered by that, especially if it's your child. So there's not that space for reading those subtle cues, like an infant turning away. So that's a big cue that we learn to look at is their eye gaze. And if they are looking at us, that may, that may mean that they want more of whatever we were doing. And if they turn their head, it's their way of saying, okay, a little bit too much, take a break or, whoa, way too much, stop and adjust and figure out how to do that differently because I didn't like that. So it is reading their little subtle cues that they have available to communicate in the early moments where they're just learning to figure out what their body is like and that they have hands and feet and ways and tools to communicate. So it takes a lot of awareness in the moment and recognizing that their crying isn't meaningful for us and that we're not doing a good job in some way that it is just something that they're going through in a body response that they're having. And we can figure out how to shift and adjust from there. So, Oh, I love that. I love that you just pointed out that like their crying isn't, it's not a fault to ours, right? It's not that we haven't, uh, that we aren't doing good enough here. We're not meeting their needs. And I think, you know, there is that physiological response to want to make that, that crying stop. And I think especially in our youngest babes where we're like, ooh, yikes, they're crying. That means they need something and I need to figure out how to make it stop. And um, our sleep consultant, Rachel, she just kept saying like, 
he he's fed he like just woke up from a nap like he all these like things his needs are met essentially and she's like and I don't know what else he needs and we just started looking at his stimulation and what helped him feel calm and it was again it was different than her older daughter and so it was harder to like see in the moment but sometimes we have this like rush to make them stop crying uh, that it can be hard to pause and see what they're really communicating with us Mm -hmm. absolutely and I think just knowing how tricky it can be to understand wants and needs in ourselves And then we think about, okay, if we're still figuring out what we want and what we need and how to communicate that, I think there's so few of us that are really experts in that, are really good at thinking, okay, this is what my body's feeling. This is what I need right now. We're all pretty disconnected, not to have a negative view, but if we didn't go through this co-regulation sequence, thousands of repetitions in early childhood and have caregivers that were really attuned to that and reading our cues and available, then it can be really tough in these moments, one, to be available, but also not to project our own emotional experience onto the child and kind of recreate the cycle. So it's so cool. And I think we're all preaching to the choir with your podcast, but uh, it's so cool that we're questioning these patterns and shifting things in, in so many ways. Yeah, for sure. So then as we're getting older, say we're moving into toddlerhood, it will look at like ones and twos here. What does this look like? What does co-regulation look like? And how do we start to move into building that self-reg skill? Uh, Yeah. So it really can go back to, and Bruce Perry has a triangle online. If everybody, I'd love everybody to have that visual just for talking about, it's called the learning triangle. And It goes through, so the bottom of the triangle is regulation. So when we think about the sensory strategies for soothe and nonverbal communication, the presence, meaning regulation in that way. And then the next step higher is relate. So it's, again, becoming more distant. Not You're still there, but maybe you're an arm's length away or you're using eye contact or shared gaze to regulate instead of a body-on-body approach. And then the third up on the triangle is reason. So that's where we would bring in some language and problem solving. And for toddlerhood, we could always go back to the sensory strategies to soothe. And I think this is an area that I think caregivers have a tougher time with because even a four-year-old or a five-year-old could still benefit from sensory strategies to soothe at times. But because they're older, our demands are higher and our expectations are different and we might not be as available to offer that to them. So toddler life, I would say, is where we're often still using some of those sensory strategies, but really working on building the co-regulation in ways that is more shared. So instead of the adult doing a lot to soothe the child, the toddler is learning to read their own signals and cues and to regulate themselves with the adult there and present. So things that that may look like are instead of if a toddler falls and gets hurt, uh, instead of a parent or caregiver rushing in right away and picking them up, we're waiting for the child to initiate. So if they fall and they cry and then they look 
to the caregiver and put their arms up, that's them starting this process of, okay, I got hurt and I need or I want my caregiver with me because I feel unsafe right now or I feel insecure. That was a big surprise or it really hurt. So we're helping the child see that they can recognize that on their own because again, we want the crying and the upset to be to be done biologically. But if we can slow that moment down a little bit and wait for the child to look and to signal to the parent, there's so much integration happening in that moment because they're upset. They have to orient their environment and maybe notice what happened, maybe notice where their caregiver is in space. So they're integrating their auditory system and their visual system and their postural system. And their emotions in a way that's pretty complex and we don't often think about when a child is slipping and hitting their knee on the curb. So there's a lot of co-regulation meat in that moment alone that can happen. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com To learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash voices. I love that. And I think uh, you, you nailed something we see often where 
we ex it's expectations, right? Where we have certain expectations of a one-year-old and how they will show up in the world emotionally and language and what to what tools they'll have. And then we have what's often referred to as these terrible twos where we're like expecting these tantrums and we expect these meltdowns. And now we have this term three-nager. I'm not sure if you've heard that bad boy, oh, yeah. but <laughs> really what, it, what I see it as in a lot of my work is that we didn't give these kids tools as a one-year-old, and then we still didn't give them the tools as a two-year-old, and now they're three and we expect them to have them, but we haven't given them to them because mm -hmm. our expectation wasn't that when they were one and two. And now we're like, all right, buck up, sister. Let's do this get stuff together. And they're like, I don't have stuff to get together. Right. Like, and, and then this continues, right. Where I just had somebody the other day who was like, Oh, I feel like four is the hardest age now. I'm like, right. Because your expectations have risen of what they're capable of, but we haven't built their emotional toolbox for that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think kiddos are capable of so much more so young if we know kind of where to fit this in and i love that you initiated this with the like if they fall and get hurt because our instinct i mean if they're running into the street please don't pause and wait for them to respond right like go grab them but if they fall and get hurt and there isn't like a face of blood on the on this on this sidewalk here and they just like bump their knee or whatever I love that you uh, use that as an example because our instinct is to swoop in and make it stop because they're feeling something hard and it sucks so bad to watch someone you love and care about, especially your tiny human, feel something that's hard. Mm -hmm. And so much of learning, I think this self-reg skills here is knowing it's okay to feel something that's hard. And that I can build tools to find my calm so that we can problem solve, do conflict res, talk about it, move on. But first, uh, when a kiddo is having a hard feeling, sending them that message that like, oh, this sucks and it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to be here with you. You have tools. And now we can bring in why we use coping strategies um, instead of coping mechanisms as kids are getting older to help process. And when we're turning to these coping strategies, kiddos are going to feel it for a little longer. Like, Oh, how can I help you feel calm is one of my favorite sentences. Or how can I help you feel safe? Because it's triggering to them. Like there are tools to help you do that. And I'm here to be a part of it with you as you're building those. There's so much in what you just said. I think I'm taking notes on little topics <laughs> because there's so much meat in there. And I think the acceptance is a big word that I was thinking of as you're talking, because just hearing that, yes, the expectations on age range can really be tricky when we're thinking about humans, because especially in those toddler preschool years, there's so much emotion that is coming out and that they're learning to feel and experience and how it originates is this primitive, impulsive reactive way of being that's really has it's really got a lot of strengths if you think about it because they're so in the moment they're fully invested like their body mind and emotion is fully in the moment which is you know, most adults can say that very little we're all working on it and learning but um they're really in this primitive protective mode where if they hit it's likely a very 
reasonable body reaction that they're having to something that happened before that. So adapting our expectations and recognizing that if we expect that a child will never hit or they will never have a meltdown, then we're setting everybody up for a really difficult time. And if we can think and understand what's happening developmentally in those years, and that when emotion first comes out, it doesn't really look pretty or organized. It looks reactive. It looks animalistic in some ways. And it's our role to shape that and shift it and guide them and let them know, as you mentioned, that it isn't the goal to avoid all this emotion and just shut it down and repress it and internalize it, which is what so many of us have done. And it comes out later in anxiety or depression or perfectionism or browsing social media for hours on end. That or, or a lot of therapy dollars. Or a lot of therapy dollars, <laughs> yes. I think everybody could benefit from, but it's a lot easier if we can help them develop these tools in early childhood and not pick up all the shame that comes with a child hitting and then a parent saying, no, don't do that. That's not nice. But they're not really making meaning of the original emotion so that if they hit, they feel really guilty and their anger may be displaced with fear because they know that they're not supposed to be doing that. They might get in trouble. So they're never really learning to work on that primitive urge of anger and this protective response that they're having and it's really tough to make meaning of a sensation in the body if we're not able to go there and have an adult that's guiding us through it yeah and i i think really what you touched on here is that what we're trying to develop are pro-social ways to express right like i'm 30 years old and i still have tantrums i've just learned how to have a tantrum in a way that's pro-social how to express in a way that's pro-social, and then how to find my calm. It doesn't mean I never feel disappointment or fear or sadness or anger or embarrassment or shame or guilt or any of those hard feelings. It just means that I have learned how to express them and how to process them in a way that's pro-social. And that's what I want to give kids. I don't want them to stop feeling these hard things because that's not how anybody lives, right? Like that's, that that goal is unattainable. <laughs> That's not how we function. And really here, when they are hitting, I, I look at it as like, okay, I have not given them the tools to express this in another way, right? Like they're having a hard feeling and doing what feels comfortable to them, what they know how to do in this moment. And if I then turn and admonish that, then I'm adding shame to what they're already feeling, right? Like I'm just layering more emotions on here. Uh, and it's really, really hard in the moment because I, I had a kid slap me across the face once and I'm like, whoa, A, you're caught off guard. It sucks to be hit <laughs> and mm -hmm. it can feel like an attack on you, right? Like also primitive for us. And it takes a lot in that moment. The only thing I could get out that was kind to her in that moment was, I'm going to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I knew if I said anything else, I was going to react instead of respond. And so I was better off leaving this child who was deeply upset about her magnetile tower crashing, leaving her sitting there crying so that I could walk away, find my calm in the bathroom, and then come back and respond. And But the goal here isn't that she's going to stop throwing tantrums. It's that she's going to learn 
it's okay to feel mad. It's okay to feel disappointed that my magnetile tower crashed. And here is a way that I can express that, that mm-hmm. doesn't hurt the folks around me or that mm-hmm. doesn't hurt myself. Yeah, it's so high level. I mean, just you taking space and knowing that if there's a certain level of anger or intensity in our bodies, that how can we shift the moment in a way that benefits us and takes care of our nervous system, as you mentioned, because there's so many protective things that are happening in that moment if we feel threatened and kind of questioning, okay, is she a threat to my health, wealth, or well-being right now with these intense emotions? But it takes this cognitive energy. So if our emotional body doesn't have the practice going through that, it can feel really tough to take a moment and to step back. So that's powerful when you can do that. And I think for so many kids that I see, there's a lot of them that have been more passive babies or passive toddlers. And we get a lot of, our society has a lot of emphasis on the externalized behaviors that show up. So kids that are acting out or having big emotions, but there's this whole other crew that is passive and internalizing or not getting that emotion out there. So if I have a child like that and I see them get angry and do something with their body, it's really powerful because that's telling me that their thoughts and emotions are coming together. So if they're feeling something, their body's wanting to react versus passivity, which is if you feel something, the body isn't sure what to do. It's almost like a frozen uh, avoidant way, if you will, because the body isn't releasing that energy in some physical way. So I I sometimes see anger or body reactions as a really positive thing in progress. If a child has been passive before that and has not been showing the emotion, because if it's in us, and I think about this with teenagers, because if they're experiencing something, but not showing anybody, not acting out, not telling their, even their friends or their family what's happening, then that's where it gets dangerous with mental health. But if they're acting out, we can think about, okay, how is the behavior making sense? How can we support them? And recognizing that the behavior is communicating something. So going back to toddlers, this is where we set the foundation for them coming to us later in life and doing things that we can connect through versus isolating or shutting down. Yeah. No, I, oh, I loved so much about that. I... I am very expressive. People always said, oh, you wear your heart on your sleeve. I'm super expressive. And my husband's the opposite, right? Like he feels, and if it's a hard feeling, he shuts down. And it took a lot for me to, and and I see it in our tiny humans too. Actually, the kiddo who slapped me across the face is gender. I, I was so caught off guard because she's generally a kid who goes quiet when she has hard emotions. And, uh, I, think that it's so true, especially for our teachers tuning in, in a classroom where we have kids who are really expressive and we're seeing these big behaviors, those kiddos can often get our attention from the behavior so that we can start to figure out what's going on with them. But the kiddos who are quiet and are shutting down often don't get our attention um, Mm -hmm. because we're like, oh, they're fine, right? They're not expressing, they're fine. But when we can look at it and say, oh, I just saw this interaction happen, it means being really present and you're not going to get it all the time and that's okay. Um, But when we can step in and say, oh, 
you know, I just saw, so I was in a block area with four-year-olds and they were building this amazing like spaceship and they put it together and they were all jazz and they were going to go to space. And another kiddo came over and was like, can I come in your spaceship? And they were like, no, there's no room. And so in that moment, that kid like sulked away. There wasn't a behavior that came after it. It would have been real easy if I wasn't there in that moment to not see it happen and not see that kiddo's hard emotions that just were going inward, right? Um, And I just sat in the black area and I was like, oh man, I wonder how it would feel if you really wanted to play and you came over and you asked if you could play and there wasn't space for you. I didn't tell them you have to go include him. I didn't whatever. And they got to work and they made more space and they invited him into the group all Mm -hmm. on their own, which doesn't always happen that way. It was delicious. Um, (laughs) But just like recognizing, and if they hadn't made, when I saw them making space, I was like, okay, they're going to navigate this and he's going to come back into the group. And if they hadn't, I would have left the block area and went and not necessarily made them make him be included because that doesn't make anyone feel included when somebody tells you, you have to include this person. Mm -hmm. Um, but instead gone over and been like, Oh man, you really wanted to go play in that block area. And they built that spaceship and there wasn't space for you. Oh, that stinks. That must feel really lonely and connecting with that kiddo who isn't expressing, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're still feeling. Yes. And there's so many co-regulation things you're doing in that moment. So one kind of reframing behavior. So if he's moving away, he's not acting out, he's not staying in it. So something might be telling us that he's not feeling safe in the moment in a way that he can adapt and shift and negotiate, if you will, or show us in some way that he wants to play. And he's not feeling secure enough with those kids to continue forward and persist. So he takes a break. Uh, Likely you were maybe getting down at his level. So using your body positioning to get down, kneel down with him and share, which is something I would suggest with that age group. Because anytime we are standing over them, like this big human, we're pretty threatening and we don't realize that because the animalistic preferences or ideas that we have about the world are if somebody's bigger and taller, that they're possibly a threat. So getting down at their level, joining it, and connecting with your gaze. So he likely felt seen in that moment if you're sharing eye gaze with him and talking with him, which feeling seen, safe, soothed, and secure is are all techniques or ways that we can help kids be organized and calm in the moment. So um, you're using your language at that point, probably changing your tone of voice, whether you recognizing it or not, I'm sure you are recognizing it, Uh, tone of voice and speed of voice. So we might cut our speed of language in half and talk slower or talk more rhythmically or use those ways of connecting in the moment. So that's all once we're getting past the sensory strategies, that's the next level that I would suggest is using still the presence and the nonverbal and the body language, but bringing in some tone of voice shifts and changing your prosody and connecting with them in those relating ways. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. 
On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Oh, I love that. It brought up a huge point for me that like, you can say all the right things and still not connect with a kiddo, right? Mm -hmm. Or an adult, right? Like Zach can come home and be like, how was your day? With like, no actual connection Mm -hmm. in his voice, not versus like, hey, Lisa, how was your day? And Mm -hmm. those are two very different things. And it's the same with these tiny humans that if I'm just like, what do you need? What's up? sorry, you got hurt, right? Like if I'm not actually in this with them, if I'm not empathizing, they're going to (laughs) know. They know from a voice, they know from exactly our body posture. It actually made me think of like how often, you know, obviously right now there's um, a huge conversation and push towards uh, equality in the workforce, or even just understanding what happens in the workforce in general in, in ways that we haven't necessarily questioned for decades, um, and how being a person of power uh, affects how other people respond to you or what people, and it's the same, I think, in the caregiver-parent uh, relationship to a child, that a child's response might partially be because of how they perceive us, either as a person of power and control and or uh, our physical stature of being like larger than them and standing over them. And mm-hmm. I think when we can get down and connect with them on a like, hey, man, I'm in this with you. Um, it, you're not in trouble for this. I just want to chat with you. It, we can go so many different places there. Yes. And the fixing, I think, comes with that power position. So when we want to fix or, uh, you know, say just the right thing to help somebody 
and we think we know what they need and we think our advice is so helpful, so mm-hmm. why not share it? Uh, you know, there's this, a lot of discomfort with emotion that comes in that first and foremost. So if we're wanting to fix or if we wanted to give advice when somebody is upset, it is this discomfort with our own emotions and our experience that is being projected on that. But also it sets up exactly this power and control dynamic where versus instead of empathy. So instead of getting down at the level and sharing it and feeling something in us that really deeply recognizes what they're feeling. So yes, maybe we're, we've never been upset about a magnetile structure collapsing, but maybe we've been upset about something else that we worked really hard on and we put our whole life into maybe for a short time, but they don't recognize that. And then it didn't work out and it it failed in some way or something was messed up or something didn't fit fit our vision of what we expected. So if we can be comfortable with that, then we can exude empathy in the moment versus just this strategy that we've learned to help kids get through this. So yes, it's much more about the how we're saying things and the how of what we're doing and thinking about it in a really human way versus this technique that will fix and get through it in the fastest way and get us on our way. So kids really pick up on that stuff. Totally. Yeah. We don't empathize with why somebody feels something. We empathize with what they feel. It doesn't matter if you think they should be feeling disappointment over this thing. What matters is that you know what disappointment feels like and you connect over that. I think that's huge. Um, So when we're moving towards self-reg tools, so we're teaching kiddos because essentially one day they are going to be in a classroom without you there, or they're going to be in a work meeting or in a partnership or whatever. How are they going to regulate themselves and their emotions so that they can respond instead of react, right? So, so many of these stories that I've said here today are because I have practiced so freaking much of this where I am like, oh man, I'm working so hard on my ability to regulate in the moment, which is so dang hard, but I'm doing it so that I can respond instead of react. Mm -hmm. And that's my goal for these tiny humans is that they learn, oh, it's totally fine to feel this. And if I can find my calm, then there are, there are two paths here. I can either react and fly off the handle and then deal with all of the added stuff that comes with that, usually shame and guilt and embarrassment, all those things of like, oh, I reacted now in a way that I don't love or that I knew isn't socially acceptable or whatever. Now I have more feelings to process, don't have tools to process those either, or I get to choose how I'm going to respond in this moment. And it is wild how early we can start to do this if we are building these toolboxes for our kiddos. And again, so much of this comes from mirroring, right? That like we are going to enter the situation feeling their energy. So if they're having a spike of cortisol, we're going to spike cortisol. What are we doing to find our calm to then be able to encourage them to find theirs before Mm. we solve the problem, right? Mm. Like I'm not solving a problem with a child who is whining, crying, whatever, because they're in the amygdala and they're not ready to solve a problem. My goal is to help you leave your amygdala, your feelings brain and come into your prefrontal cortex, your rational brain, so that we can solve this problem together. It doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. Mm. That's my goal. And so when we're doing this, like 
what does this look like as we're moving from the infant who we're snuggling to help them find their calm or we're giving a coping mechanism to like a pacifier or a levy? How are we moving from that to like, oh, how are we going to find your calm in this moment so we can solve mm-hmm. this together? How are we moving into that self-right piece? Such a big step because there's so much empowerment that happens in these moments and so much resilience that's built. And there's many caregivers that have difficulty, again, sitting with their own emotion and then project that onto them in a way that it can be like the, the co-regulation phase is often going directly to sensory strategies or the adults wanting to stay really enmeshed in the soothing in a way that the child doesn't really need. And it's setting up this message to the child that is saying, you need me, you need me. Mm-hmm. And it is this dance between you know, needing and letting go and finding ways that things can work out. It is this dance between recognizing when a child really needs us or uh, when they're ready to let go. So again, reading their signals, reading their cues, letting them initiate, letting them come to us, creating the space. And then also first building lots and lots of layers of joy and fun and pleasure and interaction because that really sets the foundation for them to ultimately self-regulate. So we need lots and lots and lots of these really human shared joy interactions in order to set a foundation to self-regulate, which I think is a piece that is often missed when we're having this conversation about regulation. So when we're thinking about nurturing the brain, it isn't when the child is under stress that the brain is really shifting. So the moments that are nurturing relationship and connection and engagement in others, but also in the world. So in all learning, the moments of joy and fun and silliness and spontaneity and really the vitality for life and what that means is happening in the moments where they're feeling their best and they have a gleam in their eye, which is DR floor time language, which is the model I work with. And uh, that's when the child's brain is lighting up in all these ways that we want for development and making the connections and setting the foundation for when things are tough or things are harder and they can pull from these strong integrated ways of being when things are more difficult or things are more challenging. So it sets up the trust and the safety and the security that we really need in order to regulate a child when they're in a more stressed state. So if they're not trusting other humans and trusting their environment, then trying to co-regulate a child that doesn't feel that foundational safety in their world is really tricky. It takes a lot of time and a lot of process and a lot of helping them experience joy and meaning in a way that they can ultimately feel safe enough to have somebody there to co-regulate them versus reject that. I think that's so, so, so important that like, we're not just talking about the hard emotions, but how to have joy and connection with these kiddos. And when we're looking at things like um, building empathy in humans, we're looking at a four to one positive to every negative thing a child hears about themselves. And I think we're, we're often missing that where we're turning and we're responding to these negative things, but we're really missing these points of, of positivity. And just like, even that kiddo who's walking by where I just say, hey bud, 
I love you. Right. Just like connecting with them in these, it doesn't have to be big, like trust building moments. In fact, it often I think happens in these really small moments where we say, you know what? I have a few minutes and right now I would love to just sit on my phone and check out, but I'm going to spend five minutes playing with you with my phone away. Right. Like, mm. Hey, I would love to play with you. I have a couple minutes before dinner's ready. What would you like to play? Right. Just like finding moments of connection. Exactly. Yes. And in daily routines, it's not, doesn't have to be this big, exactly time sensitive thing. Uh, although it is helpful, you know, the more, the better quantity is important. However, just when they feel seen in their daily life, that's so powerful for setting the foundation for all this. And then when we're thinking about the moments where they're going through the tough stuff, so how to help them work more towards self-regulation. I would first and foremost say that it's all about getting them back to a positive engagement with life and the world. So anytime we're going to the next step of that triangle, which is reason. So we might say, Oh, this magnetile is knocked over. Like that stinks. We're going through allowing the space for them to feel it and release the emotion, having a sense of empowerment in our way of being. So it's not this sympathetic tone that we're using, like, oh, this is so hard. This will never be over. This happens all the time, you know, not feeding into those sympathetic tones or fixing, but really empowering them and through our presence, recognizing that they can do it and they can get through this and we fully trust them to handle the emotion on their own, although we'll be there until they're ready to do that. So helping them create the space to feel it and release it if that's what needs to happen. So sometimes emotional release is just healing and it's either healing or communication. So if it's just healing or if they're really tired and, um, you know, just need some space or have had a rough day or there's vulnerable transitions going on in life, then they might just need to have more time to feel it and recognizing that. And then problem solving and thinking, I wonder if it would be good if we, I wonder if it would feel better if we played that pillow fight game you like, you know, because you were so mad about that tower breaking, like let's, let's pillow fight and get some of this physical energy out. I probably wouldn't say that to them, but you could ultimately turn into that where it's like, let's figure out a way, almost like we would go for a run to feel better after we've stayed with the emotion, recognized what we're feeling, validated what we're feeling and created space for it because that's really important. It's not like we're running away from the emotion and trying to numb it. It's we're feeling it and then doing something to get us back to that positive state of mind. So it's disengagement and then re-engagement with that, kind of joy and meaning in life that is the goal with ultimately setting them up to do that on their own. So then maybe down the road, instead of doing some numbing things, they'll have all these repetitions of getting back to something that works for them and something that's truly adaptive in regulating. Yeah, I love it. You, what you really just highlighted there is the coping mechanisms versus coping strategies. We have episode 38 if people want to dive in deeper on that. But um, the coping mechanisms in life are those things that numb. And we all have them. It's how our body survives, right? Like you aren't always going to have time to process something. Uh, uh, right When Rachel was going through chemo, she was like, 
oh man, like she was tapping into all her coping strategies. And I was like, sister, you're not going to process this right now. Like your life is on the line. It's okay to also tap into some mechanisms to numb this so that you can survive and show up in this world. Um, we're not always, a lot of times when we have these big things that are going to take a long time to process death in the family, um, new transitions. A lot of the times we want to bring in coping strategies to help us process, but the numbing is going to happen sometimes too. But mm-hmm. overall, what we want is for kiddos to have strategies, which are our processing tools. This is the like movement, the going for a run. And some of them are preventative. Some are things that you're doing on a daily basis. Like I'm going to exercise or I'm going to drink enough water. I'm going to get enough sleep to help your system stay regulated. And some you're tapping into in the moment. What do I do when I'm really feeling fear? What do I do to help my body feel safe again? How do I find that calm? And that's huge. It's so much of the work that we do in this village is like finding that calm. In fact, in our, I have a virtual membership. We meet monthly and um, I do a two hour live workshop on a different topic every month. And to uh, May was responding to tantrums to build emotional intelligence. So we went through like, how are we responding in this, in the moment uh, to create space, to validate, to, to go through coping strategies. And then I do a live Q and a two weeks later and a mom came and she's like, all right, things are going well. But now my three-year-old's yelling, no calm mama. And I was like, oh great. She's telling you, I'm not ready to tap into that strategy yet. I still need to feel this, right? Like, I'm still expressing this. It's like when somebody tries to stop me from crying, like, please don't. This is what my body needs to do right now. When Mm -hmm. I'm done, I will tap into a coping strategy to find my calm. I'm not going to cry for the rest of my life. I'm not going to feel sad for the rest of my life. And I know that now because I know I have a toolbox to move through it. And that's what I want for these kids. Mm -hmm. Not that we're trying to make that tantrum stop or that we're trying to make them cry in our timeline because it's annoying and inconvenient because it is. Um, but that we are holding space and saying, you know what, I will be in the kitchen if you need a hug mm-hmm. or that if they still need space to feel and you need to walk away from it, that's okay too, that you can let them know where you'll be if they need some co-regulation and some support through this. But you can take space to take care of yourself through this too, so that you don't try and rush them through this mm-hmm. uh, and get to problem solving. Oh, I love this. This I'm I'm fired up. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Like, how do we stay in today and accept the things that come up and as part of life and work through it together versus all that other stuff that we'll definitely go to at times, but where it's our default, we can do some work. So yeah, for sure, for sure. And to be real, that it's going to be inconvenient and annoying, right? Like kids aren't like, is now a convenient time for me to throw a tantrum? is now convenient for you. It's never going to happen that way. And part of it is accepting that for ourselves, that there are going to be things that come into our day every single day that are inconvenient because kids are learning these skills still. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and diving into this. I love it. And I could get nerdy on this stuff forever. Where can people connect with you and continue to learn from you and, and walk alongside you? Yeah, thank you so much, Alyssa. This has been so fun, and I'm honored to be on this podcast with you all. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Thriving Littles, or my website is www.thrivinglittles.com. So there you can find my email and reach out to me about consults, or I have some lots and lots of information about this stuff on Instagram or Facebook. So check me out there. Sweet. Thank you so much, Katie. I hope that you have a lovely day. You too. Thanks. <laughs> 
Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.